0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ed Mendel. What can I say about Eddie? He is the co-founder of Ned Davis Research, uh, which is a enormously successful institutional research shop sold to EuroMoney uh, about six or seven years ago for, for a price tag that is uh, googleable, but I could tell you it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, he very successfully took the genius that was Ned Davis and wrapped an entire business model around it. And while Ed himself is very humble and and credits uh, uh, Ned's genius for the success of the firm, really he is one of these um, underappreciated uh, people in finance who who took a great idea and found a way to turn it into a very, very successful business. I don't think there would have been a Ned Davis research without Ed Mendel's uh, contributions. He's also very actively involved in philanthropy. He's one of the minority owners of of the Atlanta Falcons and just uh, an all-around inspirational guy. I've relied on his insights over the years, not just for uh, helping to put together the forerunner of, of Masters in Business. We discussed a little bit uh, about how his contributions actually helped lead to this show, but also his insights about running a business and managing people and managing capital and assets and being able to think about the various ways that business is done uh, properly, intelligently, ethically, and, and um, just just being smart about how to run a shop. Uh, and so I have a tremendous amount of gratitude to him personally for for sharing his insights with me over the years. He mentors a lot of people, uh, and and he's just one of these people who aren't a household name but have had an enormous influence on on finance and business. And even though you may not have heard of him, uh, you probably should have. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Eddie Mandel. My special guest today is Ed Mendel. He is co-founder of Ned Davis Research, as well as the brokerage firm Davis, Mendel, and Regenstein, uh, which were both founded in 1980. Collectively, they're known as the Ned Davis Research Group. Uh, Ed helped to build one of the largest stock and bond research followings on Wall Street, working closely with Ned Davis since 1971. Their research is best characterized as an objective disciplined approach to investing, focusing on risk management, primary trends, and avoiding major financial disasters. Ed has been associated philanthropically with numerous national and Atlanta charities. He is also a minority owner of the NFL football team, the Atlanta Falcons. Ed Mendel, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. I think I know you for more than a decade, maybe close to two decades, because of your work at Ned Davis Research and and being a partner uh, to Ned. Let's ask the first question. You guys began in the middle of a bear market in the 1970s in your work in, in markets. How did that impact your psychology the rest of your career?
0: It got us focused And uh, we really became uh, an institutional research firm, Mm -hmm. and we were very fortunate that when we started, it was 95% retail and ended up being 95% institutional. And so it wasn't uh, a matter of of anything but uh, being at the right place at the right time with the right product. And I just knew that Ned was a genius Uh and that uh, we would somehow be successful.
1: The '70s, you guys were at a brokerage firm. How did you and Ned hook up? How did you guys find each other?
0: I started at J.C. Bradford in Nashville, and uh, Ned came home from Harvard and uh, started working for J.C. Bradford. I went in and introduced myself to Ned, and we struck a friendship. and uh, And uh, you know, eight years later, we left to start our own firm.
1: You mentioned being in, launching your career in the 1970s and. Ned Davis Research in 1980, you started mostly at retail, but it eventually morphed to institutional. Was that because the retail investor was not a participant? Was it the psychology? How did you shift to such a heavily heavily weighted institutional practice?
0: Bradford, I don't think, really understood what they had on their hands with Ned. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the first people to go out and market Ned In Texas in in the state of Texas and in Houston and going backwards uh, I was a retail broker Uh my career really got helped tremendously by May Day uh, uh, May 1st 1975
1: when all the commission structures changed it used to be
0: you could so I became really one of the first discount brokers Mm -hmm. and so it was 82 cents to sell 100 shares of IBM But Merrill Lynch and Kidder and Payne Weber would not let you discount, so I went around to all the wealthy people I could find in Atlanta and offered them a 40% discount. Wow. So I became the biggest producer at Bradford, Uh but then I started asking Ned to leave and we were going to leave in 78 and we ended up leaving in 1980 which is a, another story which i'll get to later
1: okay well let, let's get to it right now you started in 1980 why why did you wait till that year
0: we were going to leave in 78 and uh ned was going to move to uh, sarasota venice florida and uh, we were going to start the firm but uh radford came to ned and made him a partner and uh and he stayed But then in 1979, he went to Jimmy Bradford and told Jimmy that he wanted a computer. And Jimmy told him, I've seen computers and you're doing fine just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so Ned went out on his own and spent $35,000 on a Hewitt Packard computer that did graphics. And within six months, you could buy a chip that made it 10 times faster. And within a year... You could buy the computer with the chip in it that was 10 times faster for a total of $7,000. Wow! And,
1: uh, uh, and And I recall Ned saying that he had pitched Bradford on technology and computerization and the ability to crunch a lot of numbers, and the response was sort of, hey, what you're doing is working fine.
0: Yeah, with that, Jimmy said it's, work, it's working just fine. But Ned, Ned is, was, was a genius, and you know, was, among many other things, it was clean data. Uh, you know, we cleaned data for Ibbotson and S&P, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we were known for our charts and our data, mm-hmm. among many other things. But uh, the, the, the other great story uh, that came out of that is uh, uh, Ned told me, I think, the fourth biggest lie ever told. Mm-hmm. And he told me when we started that we were going to need a programmer, but just for a year. And I think when we sold the company, we had 14
1: programmers. So the fourth biggest lie is you, we're going to get a programmer, but just for a year. Just for a year. Let's talk a little bit about you guys hanging your shingle in, in 1980. Really, the final innings of a 16-year bear market. How did you guys have the nerve to launch into that environment and how did you get clients
0: we started and ned thought that within four months we would have the products that he had in his head up and running but it was two years later so right we never took any money out of the business for two years wow. we put it back into the business uh completely and totally and uh, i had a big retail business and so the retail helped carry us until we got up and running with the institutional business. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that eventually morphed to almost all purely institutional. Totally, mm-hmm.
0: which uh, was a blessing.
1: Why do you say that? Uh,
0: the retail is, uh, you know, where's my check? Where's my dividend? I'm going to sue you. It's, right. it's, 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 a, it's just a, it's a tough gig. It really yeah. is. And so, you know, if you're going to do it, you might as well get paid big. Mm -hmm. And we we were blessed that uh, as far as the right time and the right place, um, we got paid in soft dollars and commissions. So So
1: explain soft dollars because a lot of listeners may not be familiar with it.
0: Well, uh, we would go to the state of Texas and tell them we wanted $25,000. And and if I went to you and said, I have this service and, you know, you'll like it, but you had to write a check personally for $25,000, you go, I really like it, a lot of money. But the state of Texas was going to buy a million shares of Boeing through one of our clearing firms, Payne Weber, Goldman Sachs, or especially Bear Stearns. And so they'd buy a million shares, and at 10 cents a share back then, or 15, uh-huh. and, and give us ten or $15,000. It, it so in
1: other words, you, it, you guys set up the broker-dealer in order to that's right, broker, allow, hey, we're going to spend yeah. the money on the commission anyway. It might as well pay for the And research. It was other people's money. Mm-hmm. And
0: so that's what made the, the business uh, very successful.
1: Were you ever actively involved in trading yourself, or were you mostly doing institutional sales? Mostly institutional sales. And um, so the business was sold in 2010. Do you still have any involvement? Because I know Ned still does. No so, no. so you're you're free and clear for free, seven years now. That's right? That's
0: right. The Falcons and grandchildren
1: is what's keeping you busy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you guys launched in 1980, who were your competitors? Who was out there selling the sort of quantitative technical research that that you guys were doing
0: again we were just at the right place at the right time with with the right product and one of the products though ended up uh, by accident Mm -hmm. uh, was the uh, chart service We, Mm -hmm. we did the charts for ned Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, As long as you're doing it for him, you might as well make yeah, it available we had, for Yeah, We really
0: didn't have an idea that that would be such a huge hit for client presentations, for marketing and meetings mm-hmm. and uh, brochures. And so we had a huge uh, publishing uh, complex by sending out these huge chart books that were three or four inches thick. Uh-huh. And then we got into customized research.
1: So let's talk about customized research because at present, And for the past decade or so, Ned Davis Research generates 2,000 custom research projects a year. Am I getting that right?
0: It's been six years since I've been there, but but a lot, a lot. So,
1: So what's a typical request? How is this ramped up over time? That sounds like a lot of specific individualized research. Or is there a ton of overlap from one to the next?
0: Uh, again some of the best projects and ideas have come from our clients Mm -hmm. and so Ned is uh, just incredible about devouring data and information and studies Mm -hmm. and so we had a whole research department of people that would do projects that other people thought of doing or uh, they would want the the models or stuff built just for them on a proprietary basis so Mm -hmm. we once we got in their back pocket uh, we stayed there.
1: Huh. So let me let me share one of my favorite Ned Davis quotes, and, and you could perhaps give me a little color on it. We are in the business of making mistakes. The only difference between winners and losers is that winners make small mistakes, while losers make big mistakes. Discuss.
0: Well, you know, Ned's also famous for... Uh, Saying they're, they're the only thing worse than making a forecast is sticking by it. Right. And so, He wrote, famously
1: wrote a book, Would You Rather Be Right or Make Money? Yes. Being Right or Making Money, Being I think right is, right is the exact money. title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, risk control. Uh, and, you know, I'm reminded of uh, one of the biggest hedge fund people in, uh, in a, here in New York once told me he puts on a trade and then starts worrying about everything that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. But, uh, having a stop loss and controlling risk and not letting a little mistake become a disastrous mistake is mm-hmm. is, is is incredibly important. I,
1: the version of that I learned when I began in the business was it's okay to be wrong, it's unforgivable to stay wrong. And I think there's a lot to that. Yes. Um, so the I keep coming back to the risk management side of this. How much did really making your bones in the 1970s in the midst of that horrific bear market, plus inflation, plus uh, 12% risk-free treasury yields, how much did that impact the psychology of what you guys were doing? Because you keep talking about, um, and everything I've read from both of you is, manage your risk, don't let disasters happen, pay attention to the primary trend. How formative were the 1970s to, to Ned Davis research?
0: Uh, again, Ned, Ned's genius mm-hmm. is what I what I banked on. I, I realized very early that it wasn't Ed Mendel research. It was Ned Davis <laughs> research. right. So we but still- you were
1: you were and, and, and I I appreciate your humility, but you were instrumental in taking his brilliant insights and building a business around it because left to his own devices, I get the feeling, that Ned would be very happy to just stare at, at, at the computer, crunch numbers, but perhaps not monetize that in, in the ways that you've managed to.
0: Well, yeah, I had to go out on the road and hire the people. Ned did not do, want to deal with lawyers or accountants, mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted to do research, which right. it was, is – that's his forte. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he did it unbelievably well, and he wasn't distracted. And so he, he did not go out on the road a whole lot. And uh, so I, it was left up to me to, to, to do the marketing and build the firm.
1: And that started in 1980, and then 30 years later, the firm was sold to who? EuroMoney. You guys built a reputation for being fact-based, quantitative, and really one of the first major technical analysis firms. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You're an institutional salesperson. Ned is looking at charts. How did you perceive... The value of technicals for for your institutional clients way back in the 70s and and 1980 when you launched.
0: Ned would be the first to tell you that technical analysis doesn't work half the time, Mm -hmm. but neither does fundamentals. Right. And so the genius which Ned has is to be able to mesh and look at everything. Mm -hmm. And so we also did, you know, an incredible deal on on, uh, uh, sentiment. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so we had some of the best sentiment charts, you know, around. So Ned's genius is that he looked at everything. Right. And
1: he just didn't hang his hat on technical analysis. So, but you were out in the trenches selling the product to institutions. Yes. Yeah. Did you find that when you were discussing chart sentiment, everything else, that all the work that was being generated in-house... Was there an advantage to working with charts and technicals? Was it different than what everybody else was selling? What What made this so successful? Because it's easy to say in retrospect, well, we were more wrong than right. But at the time, you're the guy who's selling it, and you don't know how much wronger or right it's going to be.
0: Well, Ned had incredible historical perspective mm-hmm. on the market and everything and so we, we, we went out there we had a broad-based service we had like 10 different services mm-hmm. and so uh um, we just didn't hang our hat on you know the bond commentary or the stock rankings but, but between ned's hotline which is probably the best historic perspective and fed watching around and then the chart service where we got, you know people really depended on us for uh, their client presentations marketing and meetings Mm-hmm. uh and brochures and then we added to that where uh we were doing all this customized research so it's a service business so you know i i came from uh, a southern town retail and you the you grew up in, in little rock arkansas uh-huh. is that right yeah but the customer's always right mm-hmm. and we did we tried to do more than our share in a relationship and we tried not to gouge the customers. And for value received, we, we gave them a great total product, but we were very lucky that the soft dollars-
1: Were able to cover the cost. And,
0: and it was pain, painless for them mm-hmm. to pay us.
1: And by the time you guys ended up selling in 2010, I want to say Ned Davis Research was institutionally one of the most widely followed institutional services out there. Is that a, is that a fair, fair statement? Fair statement. We know that the early days, Ned was attracted to computers, but here we are in 2017, computers are running everything from high-frequency trading to analyzing SEC filings to uh, just about anything you could think of. How have computers changed the game of institutional investing?
0: Again, I've been out of the the business for for, for seven years, Mm -hmm. and the, you know... It's the ETFs and the trading that uh, have diminished everything. And the it's it's what made it wasn't the computer. It was Ned's uh, interpretation of the data and the information. And so uh, you layered upon, you know, the computer. You had Ned's Ned's historic perspective and uh, economic view, monetary view. And that's what made us different. We had to differentiate ourselves. And so the computer, you know, and this goes back to 82. Reagan deserves a lot of credit for things that he did, but he was very lucky. The personal computer came along and uh, created 26 million jobs. Mm -hmm. But it also made us unbelievably productive. I mean, unbelievably. It used to take us all day to do a mailing list, literally.
1: And, and uh, once you started working with the computer it, in 82? It was,
0: it was seconds. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. once we got everything up and running. So it's the productivity that made us unbelievably successful also.
1: But the pushback to that would be, well, computers were available and they can make everybody productive. Why were you guys able to take advantage of it? When others didn't.
0: Well, again, I alluded to the, the data. Mm-hmm. Ned was the first with data and clean data, and so he uh, could look at 500 charts a day and with a red pen and knows knows when a, when a chart is a sixteenth or. The slightest bit off, just by so, eyeballing. Yes, it. so his uh, one of his many genius things is. But we 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 were a freak about clean data, and there's a lot of was a lot of, or probably still is a lot of bad data out there.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the modern stock market. How did you guys think about managing risk when you uh, launched the firm in in the early 80s?
0: You know, I was 30 years old. And uh, I was too naive or stupid to, to really worry. I, I knew it would be a big success. And so it, there wasn't any question that, you know, between my retail business and having Ned as a partner that it was going to be successful. So it wasn't a question of managing risk. It was, uh, it was about putting money back into the business and, and building it. And so not taking money out for two years and hiring salespeople and hiring people and programmers uh and and uh you know that's what helped get, lay the foundation for the thing to be successful so
1: you said you didn't take money out for two years and basically the revenue was coming from the high net worth side but you guys had to be taking salaries you weren't just doing nothing nope nothing not nothing. a penny not a every penny. dollar went back into the business for two years uh-huh. And so you were really paying your dues in, in that period.
0: Yeah, I remember writing checks for $35 and $70 and cringing.
1: Uh-huh. And cringing. Uh-huh. So at what point did the firm begin to be able to allow the two of you to take a salary? In Two years. It took two years. Two years, and what was it that changed the launch of the new products? No, you know we we were
0: building an institutional base mm-hmm. that that was taking off, and we started clearing through Bear Stearns. Uh-huh. Greenberg was, you know, very helpful in convincing Ned that you know he he took us aside for his eight seconds and said, <laughs> "Just come here, we'll take care of everything." They, they had an unbelievable clearing operation.
1: Bear, this is Bear Stearns in the early '80s. Uh-huh. At the time, they were the third or fourth largest uh, brokerage firm. Is that yeah, about but right? But they,
0: they were probably the biggest clearing firm for, mm-hmm. for what we did. Institutional uh, institutional traders. trading. And so we didn't have to have floor brokers or clearing or back office. So, you know, the Bank of New York would call up Bear Stearns and buy a million shares of Boeing, right, for a dime, and they would credit per them, share uh-huh, and give credit to. This one, this one, and this one are Ned Davis Research. Right. So, um,
1: so that's a $100,000 commission on that transaction. Well,
0: back then, 25 whatever it was. Right. It made it so easy for people to pay us.
1: So, in other words, they would pay for the research via the institutional trades, which they're going to do anyway. And really, what the heck it, is $0.10? It, it did
0: not cost them anything. Right.
1: Yeah. $0.10 cents on, on Bo- a share of Boeing then. At yeah, but, 50, but, but even bucks. then,
0: it wasn't their money.
1: So because it's institutional and other people's it was a, money. It was a
0: pension fund of Kmart. Yeah, but
1: what they spend, I guess it doesn't really matter who they're uh, trading for. What matters is who they're um, executing through and where the, the money meant. In other words, whether they paid a nickel or a dime of 15 cents didn't affect their bottom line. That's right. So OPM and big institutional trading made it easy but you guys are a fairly full-service, you guys were, and Ned Davis still is, a fairly full-service um, research shop. What is, if I go to NDR and say, I want everything, how much can I spend a year with them?
0: Again, I've been out for six years. Give me but, a
1: ballpark from 10 years ago.
0: Um, you know, twenty five, fifty, dollars dollars $100,000. Okay, so and, that's
1: a lot of data, a lot of charts, a lot of mm-hmm. custom research.
0: Yeah, but you know, Goldman Sachs used to have six hundred cash traders. They have now two. The soft dollar business has diminished. Moder- two
1: from six hundred to yes. two. Yeah, so, and that's computers essentially. Yeah, well,
0: and also now everything's going to ETFs, and um, and volume is actually way down. It's it's a very different business.
1: So we've seen a move towards passive investing from a lot of the mom and pop investors, as well as on the institutional side. We've seen the rise of ETFs, and as these two things have happened, we've seen a huge decrease in uh, trading volume. What does this mean for what used to be called institutional trading and now is called, I don't even know what, what do you call it these days? Is it just buy-side research? How do, how do you describe it? If you have to pay hard
0: dollars uh-huh. for a service, it's tough. it's tough, and you have to justify, and uh, it's tough. So uh you know people that used to pay us 100 000 i just heard of somebody you know going to forty thousand. wow so it it, it it it's it's the margins get squeezed and uh you know everything was wonderful and you could pay with other people's money
1: no no longer
0: well, there's still some of it out there, but, you know, Europe is going to the MIFID, MAF, mm-hmm. and that's going to, you know, that's, I think. going be a
1: hard dollar squeeze as well. Yeah,
0: well, but the, the SEC let people off the hook here, but still uh, BlackRock, I think, went from 220 providers down to 100.
1: And what does that mean in terms of hard research dollars drying up? Drying up. So, you're no longer in in as involved in the business as you are. You're doing other stuff. How closely do you watch the stock market um, as a retiree?
0: You know, I get up in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. and I love reading, and uh, so and I'm somewhat addicted to the market. Mm-hmm. And so I get up very. It's earth- tough to pull that needle out. Yes, your arm, it is, isn't it? After yes, it forty is. years, yes, it is, and it's still the greatest game ever mm-hmm. and so uh you know I, I love the game and i love reading uh and uh th- the market is still uh, my number one love
1: are you still invested in the market or have you moved more towards a fixed income portfolio uh, uh, a third
0: a third a third and uh stocks bonds
1: uh, cash is that real estate stocks bonds and, uh, real estate. estate
0: well the falcons are a very big uh, investment also right but uh and we have a big big uh, stadium that's mm-hmm. a, that's really nice um so uh, uh i i uh, i'm very big on uh having goals and uh
1: Meaning investing towards goals or no, just, just personal personal
0: goals. Uh, years ago, I always had something in my wallet of all the goals, and it changes because at thirty, it's very different than at sixty or forty. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, right now, I, you know, accumulating great more wealth uh, won't make me any happier. Mm-hmm. Maybe give more money to charity, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I really don't want to accumulate any more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Except a Super Bowl ring.
1: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Falcons. How do you like them? And what changes are coming to the NFL? The, the,
0: you know, uh, I'm from Arkansas. It's a Razorback fan. It was always wait till next year. Right. And, you know, you don't appreciate how hard it is to get to the Super Bowl and to win it.
1: Uh, it's the most competitive thing in the world to reach that level. Um, so many things have to go right plus you have to get lucky.
0: You just appreciate the good times and uh-huh. uh, if, 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 if everything breaks right, but again, uh, two or three key injuries and- uh,
1: it's, it's problematic. Yeah. So the big issue we won't even talk about, we'll save the kneeling and the football anthem stuff for, for later. In general, we've been seeing sports, see a lot of pressure with cable, uh, people unbundling and moving to the internet. What is the future of sports broadcasts look like? Is it going to be mobile and internet? Because the idea of television and cable and saying, here, I, I'm subscribing to cable and I have to get these 200 channels, whether I want them or not. Is that gonna change uh, how rapidly is that gonna change? We know it's changing. Yeah. What what do we think happens?
0: But again, Jeff Enix and Barron's basically talks about that you know, the sports entertainment is just still one of those things, football and NHL is something that you want to see Live. Live. Right. You can't and so, and you can't
1: read about it afterwards. Well yeah, you can, right. but it's not, it's obviously not, the, not same. the same. Right. It's not
0: the same. And so, you know we, we We have a product that uh, uh, people want to have. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, I had a partner named John Emily who died recently, but it was mm-hmm. one of the most successful venture people in, the, in, in in Atlanta. And he always told me, he says, Eddie, no matter w- whether we win or whether we lose, the value of the franchise goes up every day.
1: <laughs> that's That's a uh, a pretty interesting point. We have been speaking with uh, Ed Mendel of Ned Davis Research and the Atlanta Falcons. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all sorts of interesting things. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are sold, uh, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, etc. Be sure and check out my daily column. You'll find that on Bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Eddie, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, There are two things I, I have to thank you for. One is when I first had the idea a decade ago for, hey, let's not ask people what's their favorite stock or where the Dow's gonna be in a year. Let's find out who they are and how they got that way. Let's find smart, successful people and say, so, what can we learn from you? One of the very first versions of this show was Ned Davis. We did, on the phone, you helped to arrange that. I wanna say that's almost 10 years ago. Am I, am I ballpark with that? Yes. So that that was a fascinating conversation, and it was so clear after we did it, even though it sounded terrible, it was on the phone, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing, it was clear to me that, wow, not doing four minutes and then a commercial, but letting people, hey, tell me about this, and letting them speak and, and share their history, their anecdotes, their experiences, was really valuable. and. That's led to a whole run of fascinating people telling me really amazing stories. And I have you to help for setting that up to thank begin you. with. Um, the other thing I had to say is, when I was thinking about launching my shop, I came to you and said, hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with these ideas, and you gave me a lot of really good advice, and, and I wanna thank you for that. It was mm. it was for, very, very helpful. Thanks for remembering. Oh, I re- trust me, I remember everything. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about, about football. Um, are we going to ever see live football on Facebook, Twitter, etc.? I know there have been some contracts and some announcements made. Are we going to ever be in a situation where I don't need to be home in front of a television? I could just pull up my phone and watch a game? I'm uh, a
0: minority owner. <laughs> so.
1: But you have some insight. Is that is that something that... We're thinking about. They are
0: constantly yes, you know they're looking at all aspects of of, of everything mm-hmm. to to monetize this and to you know to keep millennials and keep people interested in in uh, in, in football. But you know uh, we have a lot of people at the NFL home office and they're constantly working, working away. Working away.
1: So there's a couple of really interesting things going on in football. Um, and I know you don't speak on behalf of the league or the team, so I'm being circumspect in, in mm-hmm. what I can ask you. You're not an authorized spokesperson for NFL, but you're certainly uh, an astute observer. Um, uh, three things uh, that I, I've been thinking about or aware of. The first is uh, the idea of, of people's phones being the most important screen in their life. I have to think we're going to see Netflix or Twitter or Facebook eventually – doing a a regular broadcast. The other thing, which we haven't heard a lot about this year, but was pretty big the past couple of years, uh, and I've been reading about some of the new technologies, uh, was the concussion issues. And I've been reading about these new helmets that supposedly uh, lighter, stronger, more dissipating of of energy. Uh, How much is technology going to be the basis of a solution for you know keeping players safer over time
0: you know we recognize it as a big deal and i and i think the this is a year a couple four million dollars a year i think we were spending mm-hmm. on uh, research mm-hmm. to come up with safer better you know helmets but you know it is, it is a, it's a big issue in
1: uh uh you know it's a major concern the The most recent piece of technology I was reading about is this new helmet. a couple of uh, I don't remember if it was MIT or Caltech, but a couple of professors developed this helmet. If the standard helmet is three hundred dollars, this is nine hundred dollars. But supposedly the uh, the physics underlying um, impact energy dissipation has progressed to the point where there's we should really expect to see some, Significant changes going forward is that I know you can't speak publicly, officially, but is it fair to say that technology is going to be a big part of the solution? Just about has to be, right? So,
0: uh, but you know, they're finding from junior high school, high school, college. That, you know, this this is a cumulative effect. It's right. not just it's not just the NFL. Sure.
1: So that that's an issue that. Um, uh, kind of got overwhelmed this this year by by other stuff. Um, what else do you see that's interesting taking place in in football? i I just read a fascinating review of uh, of the the commissioner, um, Goodell Goodell, and he's about to re-up his contract. Uh, basically the owners seem to think he's doing a, a tremendous job. In a very difficult environment, is is that a fair fair assessment?
0: You know, again, I'm not, uh, I'm, st- I'm still the minority partner <laughs> from 15 minutes ago. Right.
1: <laughs> so, so you're not um, turning around to uh, to to say anything. If you Google, uh, there was a recent story about on ESPN and a handful of other places. The consensus seems to be very challenging couple of years, especially under this president. Um, but he's done about as good a job as anybody. Really, is uh, can expect of him fair? Fair, uh, fair yeah, assessment, yeah.
0: but like you know this better than anybody. Everything changes. So sure, it's, it's changed. You know, there's never been a time when the, when there wasn't something to worry about. Of course, uh, in the market or in life. So we
1: were we were just discussing this the other day that we are biologically programmed to notice bad news, and one of my colleagues in the office, Mike Batnick, wrote a piece. Why good news is overlooked. You, it, good news is never a threat, but bad news is a threat, and that's why we basically place such disproportionate weight on that.
0: Well, except for right now, I think good news in the market is good news and bad news just isn't true. Uh,
1: well, what sort of bad news in the market isn't true? What What do you see as, as the, the memes that are out there that are negative for the market, but we're overemphasizing or putting too much weight on? We'll get
0: back to uh, black swan events, okay. which I'm, I'm not big on. Right. But in Japanese folklore, there's a thing called white swans. And a white swan is something right in front of you that you just – can't see we don't just not paying attention to mm-hmm. and so uh, this next time around just like in in 01 the dot com was right in front of you and right the fed didn't see it and oh wait they it? saw it they just said ah what can we do it's easy okay. to clean up afterwards and, and, but no eight no money down pay what you want interest only no documentation uh, how can anybody not be surprised but it, it was right in front of you, and so right. this-, this In
1: fact, I have to, again, give kudos to Ned Davis Research. One of my favorite charts that if you looked at, you couldn't help but not see something coming, there were three charts that I tracked in the early 2000s, some of which came from you. One was cost of owning versus cost of renting. That was a pretty standard chart. The one that I first noticed from Ned Davis Research was median income versus median home price. Ned mm. was putting that out. And for decades, it you know, moved up and down a little bit. And then in 04, it went straight up through the roof. And um, it was clear something strange was going on. There was no other way to, to describe that. Um, and then the third one was, and I think this also might have been you guys, was total value of the um, total value of the housing stock meaning all the homes in America mm-hmm. relative to GDP and similarly it was you know pretty steady for decades and then suddenly three standard orders of, of magnitude if you were I, I call the financial crisis the jumping dolphin of crises do you remember the 3D paintings that people used to have, mm-hmm. if you stared at it right, suddenly you would see the the leaping dolphin. Mm-hmm. Those charts were the leaping dolphin. If you saw those charts, it was obvious, hey, this is all going to blow up. Um, but if you weren't looking in the right place, well, the market keeps going higher. It must The market must know that this isn't important, I heard over and over again.
0: Well, getting back to the, the white swan, uh you know things are really great right now. There's no economist not saying you know there's no recession for a couple of years, and uh, you know earnings are
1: record highs, uh, Nasdaq blowing, record blowing high,
0: growing. And, and so uh, the, the the white swan that's out there is that maybe things are too good, and you're you know you're going to have a blow off. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh,
1: Fed's going to tighten the economy. And, you, and, you can't and, lower and, unemployment any further, can you? Uh, again, uh, <laughs> you know,
0: there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, right. uh, uh I, I, Nothing would surprise me. I, but, I but, understand. Uh, uh, you know, the the, the the you know this thing is somewhat manipulated. Mm-hmm. You, you know, two hundred and eighty. because of the Fed, QE? because of the Fed, and you know, EU especially, mm-hmm. and Japan, and. and Japan, you know, they own sixty five percent of all the ETFs and sixty five percent of the topics, and you know, Switzerland owns two hundred eighty billion dollars worth of stock out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Mother Nature doesn't like to be fooled, so whatever happens will come out in inflation or currencies or the bond market. Uh, so let me push back. If I, against had, that. if I had to guess, the white swan yeah. is right in front of us. It's just everything is good, right. maybe too
1: good. So let me push back against that. Every time there's some sort of financial crisis, be it 8 09, or 2000 or 74 or mm-hmm. uh, 29 or pick your crisis in the United States, the government always steps in to do something. You know, we created the SEC. We created the FDIC. Isn't that standard that uh, some disaster befalls us and, and uh, the free marketers suddenly become, ah, maybe we can manage this a little more uh, aggressively well uh, again i had
0: breakfast with uh, the president of the the atlanta fed Mm -hmm. and uh, i asked him the next speed bump what are you going to do this is last year at breakfast and he says we're just going to do more qe and so
1: that's now the solution to everything? That
0: it must be because they don't, they don't. I ask if there's a plan B. There isn't. There isn't a plan B. And so, you know, you, so they'll buy real estate in ETFs or whatever this next time. But they're already doing that in Europe. So
1: every general fights the last battle. QE worked fine when the issue was a frozen credit market. But if you just have a cyclical slowdown and a recession, what is QE going to do? That's, that's,
0: the, that's the question. And uh, hmm. it's, it's going to be very interesting.
1: Yeah, to say the least. I want to get to our favorite questions, but there's one thing um, I have to ask about sentiment. You're raising that issue. Um, things are too good. Do you, do you think the investing public thinks things are too good? Because up until recently... They did not embrace this rally. They were not—I mean, the market tripled since the March nine lows, and they seem to constantly be waiting for the black swan, not the white swan. Yeah.
0: You know, but you have record low mutual fund cash, mm-hmm. and, you know, the market's tripled, but revenue's only up 30%. Mm-hmm. And so there's been— But profits are higher. Yeah, no, profits are higher, but some of that's financial engineering.
1: Meaning share buybacks and, yeah, well, and things like that. yeah.
0: Uh, I just read the uh, the two and a half trillion dollars overseas. You know, Apple and uh, Oracle and all these companies have already spent five hundred and sixty billion. Borrowing money, borrowing buying back shares, buying, by, against back yeah. yeah, they still have stellar balance sheets, but uh, you know. The it's but the, it's not the public it's it's but the public or whoever's buying twenty billion dollars of ETFs a month mm-hmm. and the, the sixty four trillion dollar question is what who's going to buy when they want if they, if they ever start selling the ETFs right it, it could get ugly very fast but you know uh, you know you 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 know in a bull market be bullish so this is this is just a good time to be bullish
1: <laughs> to, to say the least uh, let's jump to our favorite questions. These are uh, what I ask all of our guests. Tell me the most important thing people don't know about your background. Um, uh, I uh,
0: had a grandfather mm-hmm. who uh, got me interested in the market when I was seven. Yeah. And I started buying stocks when I was seven and he gave me a healthy disrespect for the banking system. Oh, really? Yes. And uh, he had all his money in a safety deposit box when the when the when the crash came. Ah. Uh-huh. And he also taught me uh, about uh, uh-huh. uh, being a scavenger buyer, of fixed income, because he made his money buying railroad bonds, a penny and a nickel on the dollar. Wow. And then he thought he invented. Uh, tax straddles back in the 30s. Did he or no? Uh, well, he did it. So he, he was way ahead of his time. He also was a socialist. Uh, and <laughs> uh, A socialist market trader? Yes, he was. That's interesting. And uh, he, he was claimed he was secretary-treasurer of the Socialist Party between 1915 and 1918 and voted for Eugene Debs five times. Wow. And he said they disbanded the Socialist Party when FDR was elected because he was the biggest socialist that ever lived.
1: Well, but, we created uh, we created Social Security. We did a lot of things under yeah. under FDR. Yes. Medicaid, um, certainly the SEC. There's a ton of stuff that that he did. I find a lot of people who have been successful in the market and have accumulated wealth are starting to get pretty concerned about uh, inequality because they would rather the public be fairly satisfied and not calling for revolution
0: if you ask me for the one thing that you know bothers me uh-huh. is that this this has not been distributed it's been great for wealthy people mm-hmm. i think uh, blue-collar middle-class people are struggling and you're, you're in, this is the white swan that you, you saw it in trump being elected but you saw it in the british exit sure. Saw it in spain but you last week in catalonia Czechos- absolutely you know, czechoslovakia and austria but you saw france the two major parties were mm-hmm. cut off. Uh, even Merkel had her knees buckled, right. and so, and then nationalism's out there, and uh, you know, bad things happen when you know the. the and you're nation-
1: tracing this to income inequality, and. I, well,
0: I, no, I, I'm just tracing it there. I, I think that, that just what you said. The, the whole there's a whole class of people out there that haven't participated and are not happy and if the numbers are right of 51 percent or something can't you know come up with two hundred dollars or whatever that's shocking. it's it's there you know there's a problem out there and uh you know i haven't got the answer but i you know you're seeing something right in front of you and you know you got the, the the people in brussels unelected uh, bureaucrats right. that uh, are sort of like Monty Python, the black knight <laughs> that lost one arm, one leg, the other arm, the other leg, and says it's just a we'll flesh wound. It, it a draw. No, he said it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> right. But they're not paying any attention that right underneath what's, what's happening right underneath their noses. But you, do Greece and uh, Italy have, have these parties, and Le Pen, right. na- nationalism. Popularism,
1: it, yeah. nationalism. Uh, people are pushing back against globalization and mm-hmm. the loss of jobs to low cost providers. It's not just China, but it's Turkey and Vietnam and elsewhere.
0: And, and computers and and sure. robots and no, it, it is, it is, If you had to pick one thing that is worrisome, you hit on it that it's it's it's, it's This has not been a broad based wonderful thing for everybody,
1: and and that is a of a concern. So that may perhaps that's the white swan you talk about. Let's talk about your early mentors. Who were the people who affected the way you think about business and markets? Uh,
0: Well, first was my grandfather, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, second was Ned right? and uh, Marty Zweig. Mm -hmm.
1: What was your relationship with Marty Zweig? For you youngins listening, Zweig was a very famous technician, owned at, I think it was the most expensive... Home in America at one point in time, yeah, the top the of Pierre, the Pierre, Pierre building, Hotel, the right? The Pierre Ballroom, and regular on Rukeyser. And, he, had
0: a, he had all the Beatles outfits, and Marilyn Monroe's outfit, and, uh-huh. and uh, was quite a remarkable individual. And uh, and, and how and did Marty uh, uh, affect your just, thoughts? Just his studies, and you know, he, he was just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, also I was would tell you that uh, this is under Ripley's Believe It or Not that. Uh, uh, talking about failures, that uh, I was partners with Marty and Ned in not one but two retail letters, and both went south. Really? Which I would have thought would be impossible to do. But. Let
1: me tell you, that's a, that's question number seven. Let's ask it now. Tell me about a time you failed and what did you learn from it. Marty Zweig and Ned Davis, two of the most successful technicians in history, how did you not make a go of those newsletters? Um,
0: uh, good question. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, you know, one was a bond letter. Right. And, and it goes back to, you know. Timing? Uh, no, well, Einstein dies and goes up to heaven and. The Holy One calls him in and says, "Can you explain the bond market to me?" So I don't think <laughs> anybody can explain the bond market. That's but very we, funny. We had a bond letter, and uh, um, the, for whatever reason, that uh, I think Ned and Marty's forte was not in bonds. But I don't, I really don't remember. I try to, you know, suppress it, that, suppress it. <laughs> but uh, I, I think more importantly, I think it, it, it was the retail it is is, is, a, is a much more difficult. Uh, market
1: Than selling to institutions so, like NDR so, does. So,
0: you know, I learned, uh, the one lesson I learned from that is that, uh, you know, stick, uh, you know, dance with them who brung you.
1: That, that's, a, that's a fair question. Um, what about investors? Any investors affect the way you look at business or finance? Um, you know, I'm,
0: I'm a big believer in Blink, mm-hmm. in going out and finding people that can do things that, that you cannot do and uh, uh, and there's plenty of those but uh, I'm not a big believer in hedge funds at, uh-huh. at 8 or 9 at one time really uh uh-huh. but i'm down. meaning
1: money invested in it and uh-huh. not running
0: yeah but they 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 can't they can't perform now for whatever
1: whatever reason the conditions have changed at one point in time some of them were creating alpha very few these days very few Huh. Yeah, maybe two or three percent. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, let's talk about books. This is everybody's famous favorite question. Uh, tell us about books that you you read. What do you, what sort of stuff do you like? Fiction, okay. nonfiction.
0: Well, I read three or four hours every day, but really I don't uh, read the fiction or nonfiction anymore. So, what are you reading? But I do. My favorite author is is Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. blink and tipping point Mm -hmm. and the tipping point is aids epidemics syphilis epidemics crime epidemics stock market bond markets everything goes to a tipping point right and uh life goes to a tipping point and uh, it's always good to remember that uh you know it's there there's a tipping point out there Mm -hmm. you know at some point for everything. For everything. For everything. Thing, it,
1: things that cannot go on eventually stop.
0: Stop. And then Blink is, is again, one of my favorite books. But whether it's a, an electrician or a car mechanic, finding these people that can do things. And they know things in a blink. Right. And they're keeping them dear, you know. Is is really really it make makes your life a lot easier.
1: Have you have you read Outliers yet? Yes, I have. I, that was a really interesting. Yeah, book. everything he does is is great. Always always fascinating. Although I will tell you, uh, yes, the Beatles played the Cavern Club eight hours a day for a year. Mm-hmm. I could play the Cavern Club eight hours a day for a hundred years. I will never be the Beatles, mm-hmm. and vice versa. There are people who pick stuff up so rapidly that they're just built for certain things yes but uh i find all his books thought-provoking and interesting and he's an excellent writer i mean his prose is just
0: lovely his podcasts from last year were great only maybe two of the ones this year were outstanding
1: the ones from last year was um a a history of what, what what's the name of his podcast
0: uh, revisionist history revisionist history
1: that's what it was mm-hmm. yeah i listened to a few of them i thought they were very interesting mm-hmm. he, he's always interesting who, who else do you read anybody else uh well i read you i, I
0: think that you have the the, <laughs> the the best uh service out there and i especially like your 10 a.m reads the,
1: the morning 10 things each day the mm-hmm. the morning reads thank you for saying that um they're usually out 7 7 30 in the morning i try and get them out as early as possible I, I sift through a lot of junk to get to that. Um, there's a long story behind the reads. I'll have to share them one day. But thank you so much for saying that. It is um, it is an interesting thing that forces me to realize how much of what's produced is just noise. And finding something that is insightful, educational, and and helpful is is hard. So out of the thousands of things, identifying those. Ten things each day is a little bit of a challenge. Yes. Well, I appreciate I appreciate the kind words. What do you do outside of the office to uh, stay either mentally or physically fit?
0: Well, the, the mental part is is reading. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the morning, I all the CBS Sports uh, Bleacher mm-hmm. Report. You know, I'm a, I'm a sports junkie, but but also no surprise. And so, but also there's lots of things that I like reading in the morning. So what else Street, what else do you read The Wall Street Journal you know barons zuloff mm-hmm. uh, you know there's 10 or 20 people that you know I, I really like getting their stuff
1: Zuloff give me a couple of other names
0: who else do you would like to read uh, I, I like to read the pimco mm-hmm. people uh, the, the the one person that is is brilliant in, in uh, uh, is is um, double line Uh Jeff Gunlock. Jeff. Jeff Gunlock. Fascinating. Fascinating and, guy. Uh, uh, he, he, fascinating, and uh, uh, he he he's uh, he's out there thinking on another on another level.
1: He he definitely is, and every now and then I'll read something of his, and I'm like, wow, he's not afraid to really put it all out there, <laughs> and as often as not, he's right on some of these <laughs> real outlier calls that you would think is a much lower. Success he, rate. He was
0: one of the first people to come out on Trump.
1: That's exactly right. I mm-hmm. remember saying, hey, you're under, I remember reading him saying, you're underestimating the anger in the country and you're underestimating uh, the potential for a change candidate to win, and Trump is a tr- change mm-hmm. candidate. And he wanted to buy the Buffalo Bills and uh they didn't let him
0: uh, he i don't know what what happened but uh he, all, he would but, be a but, fantastic owner but he he uh two th- two things he uh he forecast that they wouldn't win many games this year which has not been true they have a good team and the other most fascinating thing which we could have a whole another segment on he talks about his autism uh-huh uh and uh, i found that lots of the really unbelievable people on the street, uh, just like in the big short, have Asperger's.
1: Uh, Asperger's are somewhere on the spectrum, spectrum. across across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that about uh, Ken Fisher mentioned his dad mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, pre-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. thought he was Asperger's. Ken himself very easily could be. Uh, go down the list of, of, of people who have the ability to remove their emotions from the decision-making mm-hmm. process. And if you could do that, there might be a little spectrum going on with yeah, that, for sure. Right. That's to, and
0: that's what you need to do to be to be great. You know, you,
1: you need to be different from the average human. Yeah, in Yeah, but they disseminate way.
0: information completely and totally different than mm-hmm. than than a, than a normal person. Uh,
1: not to name drop, but I'm going to name drop. Mark Andreessen had has pointed out that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is a learning machine. He said he's never met anybody. Who learned as aggressively as him? Constantly reading, constantly assimilating data, and and as your description immediately made me think of him that well, way. But Jobs, mm-hmm. socially was inept. Terrible. inept, totally and terrible, inept, terrible, right. terrible, just, to work just for a in bull in a china shop. But
0: show. he didn't have any committees, and he did all those things. Right, him. But he knew things other people didn't, didn't knew, and he knew it in a blink. Right. And you can't teach that. It's just, right. uh, it's just that's intuitive, a, that's instinctual. But it's also a
1: curse. Right. Why?
0: Why a curse? No, no just, you flip you're, side so, of it. you're socially inept. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the big, the, uh, uh, and, big short. The big short. Wife says, "I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't shave. I don't bathe." This is just the kind of man I'm looking for. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Michael Lewis is another one of those writers who are oh, just unbelievable. So, any any favorite Lewis books? While well, since I wrote uh, yeah, it everything he's put out of everything, you know, he's, every, everything. So he's it's ever Lewis put. and Gladwell, and those are your favorite. Those uh, are my yeah. But I,
0: I'm more, I'm more interested in life in in uh-huh. in, in how it affects life.
1: Yeah. Did you read um, The Undoing Project by Lewis, the no. book about, oh, well, I'm going to give you a book recommendation. Mm. Lewis wrote about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who discovered all of these um, behavioral issues that not just economists and economic behavior, but across the board, the way humans behave. And it's a fascinating story. I, If you like Michael Lewis, it's a little different than some of his other books. But it's just as fascinating. It's mm-hmm. really, a fa- I, I now envy you for not having read it because you get to read it. Huh, I've already read it. So let's get to our last two questions, my favorite questions. So if an, an, a millennial or someone who just graduated college came to you and said, hey, I'm looking for some advice uh, on uh, career and finance, what sort of advice would you give them?
0: Well, I actually try to mentor millennials. Mm-hmm. And I have a packet uh, I have found that Most do not have a clue about interviewing. Mm -hmm. So I give them a packet on how to interview, and I try to take them to lunch or dinner. And I can tell you there's five or ten things that I reinforce that they must do Uh to uh, make a good first impression. And then there's three or four or five questions I try to teach them of questions they need to ask. But uh, helping them in the interview process is, is very, very important because they really uh, do not show up ready to make a good first impression. G- give
1: us an example of each. What, what do you suggest they do on their interview okay. and what sort of questions the, do you suggest? The, the,
0: they, they need to put their resume on slightly thicker paper. Mm-hmm. Um, They need to have at the bottom... Like
1: nice bonded linen paper Uh that feels substantial. That's right. Not Xerox paper.
0: That's right. It's noticed. Mm -hmm. And then they need to have community service at the bottom of the resume. Mm -hmm. They have to have no spelling or punctuation or grammar. Zero. No errors whatsoever. No errors whatsoever. They need to walk in with a briefcase. Open
1: up the briefcase. Here's my resume. Well, it has to be organized.
0: Mm -hmm. They walk in with the left hand and shake a firm handshake, which a lot of them don't know how to handshake. Really? With a a firm handshake. Uh, If they go to lunch or dinner and uh, the boss— Don't order spaghetti. No, but yeah, don't order spaghetti. I learned that uh, too late. But uh, if the boss orders fish and chips and scotch on the rocks, you order the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. Commonality is the most important thing. And so you want to learn everything you can about that person and the company, mm-hmm. everything. And if you walk in and see that he's a tennis player, you're love tennis, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and the, the, you know the the you know the the. the, 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 the The process also, the second thing is, you want to ask them, uh, why is this position open? Um, How do you measure success? Um, um, Good questions. Yeah. And what's the next next stage in the process? You also want to take a card when you leave and write them a personal thank you and tell them Mm -hmm. you want to be part of their team and how impressed you were. And even if you get rejected, you want to go
1: back again. Send the thank you note for being rejected, and please keep me in mind in the yeah, future. But persistence pays off. Good, good advice for any millennial. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were first starting? Oh, that's, that is a good question. Isn't that? It's yes. my favorite question. Is it really? I've saved it for well, the last. Uh, uh, that, that is my uh, encore After the Everybody Cheers, you come out, you do the last song. Mm -hmm. That's my last song.
0: Well, you know, 40 40 years ago, I I think I was uh, too naive and stupid to to know how much uh, risk I was taking, uh, you know, at the time. But, you know, it also goes back to uh, the women Neuronet at 25 and men at 30. Mm -hmm. And so 30 is just a wonderful age to... Matriculate and to, to 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 do things, and so I'll tell you one final story sure. about, about Jesus. Okay, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. The average life expectancy back then was thirty-two years of age. It's a misnomer because half the people died in childbirth the right. thirty-two. So, did you ever wonder uh, they don't they don't know anything about him between the age of three and thirty? Mm-hmm. Zero. Why at 30, all of a sudden, did he emerge? Because he peaked at 30? Not quite. But uh, he—Jewish people do not allow you to become a rabbi until you're 29 or 30. Oh, really? You cannot teach life until you've experienced. Uh-huh. Same thing with the medicine, okay? You don't want a doctor that— Who's 22. No Doogie Howser. Yeah, Do. Uh-huh. So, you know— the, the 30, you know, lots of things in Judaism are well thought out, and this is why at 30 he emerged, because nobody would listen to him until he was 30. So I, I tell millennials also that college is a time to grow up and mature, and then go out and get your MBA, MBA you know, and, and experience life before you go out and,
1: and try to do something. So we, so eventually you're, you're teeing yourself up to become somebody at 30— when you can have uh, uh, a more successful chance of being successful, I I think. This is just me. I like that. That's fascinating. Ed, thank you so much for doing this. We have been speaking with Ed Mendel. He is a co-founder of Ned Davis Research as well as minority owner of the Atlanta Falcons. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold and you could see the other 160 or so such conversations that we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I forgot to mention our crack staff that helps put together uh, these weekly podcasts. Medina Parwana is our audio producer. Taylor Riggs is in charge of booking. uh, And Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.